What's up, City Life? It's good to have you with us here this Saturday night. I feel like we already, yeah, I'll give it up. Okay. <laughs> we already had a full meal spirit, I feel like, with worship, uh, all those prophetic words. Fred even preached a little sermonette right there in the announcements. And shout out Christina holding it down, double duty, right, video and live. Um, but uh, I wanted to, to mention, they mentioned the two military bags that we brought full of flip-flops uh, to La Guasra. I, I was there with a team of 10 people last week in the hills of the DR in the San Juan province, uh, this village of La Guasra, where we've got this 10-year agreement with Food for the Hungry. We were able to drop off those flip-flops, so thank you for that generosity. But I also wanted to share, when we were there, we were able to attend uh, a service um, where a, a pastor that travels ministers, and, and that's a huge answer to prayer. If you've been tracking with us and our work here in this village, we've been praying for years uh, that, that there would be a shepherd, there would be a, a spiritual mother, spiritual father that's pastoring these people in God's word. Not just missionaries that show up once a year, but somebody there who's leading these people spiritually. And so if, you're a, if, you, if you pray for the village, you can pray for a pastor, Juan Francisco Sanchez. He travels throughout that region. He, he's ministering to people in remote areas, and he comes to that village multiple times a month to minister. So we were able to come into their service. It was awesome. The small space, right? Everybody's got the plastic lawn chairs, and they were praying, worshiping. And he paused the whole thing, and, and he, he took a Bible from the front row from one of the women and held it up. Because last year, uh, we brought probably close to 100 Bibles. We, we had them shipped there because who's trying to take all that in their luggage? It's a lot of weight, but uh, dozens, if not 100 Bibles to that village. And he said, thank you, uh, because those people are using those Bibles. So I wanted to extend that thank you to everyone here uh, for your generosity uh, that, that got those Bibles there, got those flip-flops there. Your giving makes a difference. Not only does it make a difference in your heart, right, and in your worship, but it makes a difference in the world through the ministries that we do, whether it's something around here, through stuff like Cherished or Port, or through something overseas in the DR. Just trust that as you give, God's going to use it. And I wanted to extend that thank you to you. So we were able to experience uh, that worship service, which was awesome. We also experienced a little summer heat, some DR summer heat, which is a different level of summer heat. Like I was talking to Steph today. I was like, it's mild outside. She's like, no, it's hot. I'm like, no, nah, it ain't that hot. <laughs> we got that taste last week of, of some serious summer heat. But I wanted to start this week as I'm back and I'm excited to be back, our summer series, which we're simply calling High Definition. And we're going to be in Judges chapter 12 tonight. But as we uh, turn there, before we arrive there, just wanted to share some thoughts because it, it's summer. Right? It, it, it's time to unplug. All right? It's time to maybe take a vacation with the family. It's an opportunity to, to, to rest. Right? Everybody said, amen, because rest is good. Rest is great. Rest is a gift from God. We're such a culture that likes to grind, 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 but God himself rested. He wants us to rest. But I've preached entire sermons here on the subject because we can, and we often do, rest wrong. Right? Rest isn't just unplugging from the grind. Rest is plugging into God actively. Right? Rest is, is active in a sense. You see it in Scripture when David unplugs from warfare and the military conquests his kings. And rather than writing psalms or worshiping God and plugging into God, he commits adultery with Bathsheba and spirals into sin. See it in our own culture, our American culture, where we spend billions of dollars annually on what they call the leisure industry. We're the leading country in the money we pour into the leisure industry. And yet, we also lead the world in burnout. Right, so we, we love rest, but we're doing it wrong. And I just want to share tonight, man, you don't just unplug from the grind, unplug from your day-to-day, -day, unplug from work. Plug into God, right? And maybe you're thinking, why are you sharing this at the start of this series that seems like a, a totally different subject? 
And it's because our culture is doing a lot of spiritual unplugging. Right? You look at different measures uh, in our Western culture, whether it's coming together for worship, whether it's opening your Bible during the week to read scripture or it's prayer or it's speaking to others about your faith. By most surveys, by most measures, it's, it's in decline. We talked in the myth-busting series about how there's this stat they found recently where over 80% of Christians who attend church on the weekend never open their Bible during the week. And to take it beyond that stat, some 2 million Americans every year give up on church, stop going. Right? But there was a, a survey by the Journal of Positive Psychology that researched something a little different. And what they researched was our words. Not just the words we speak, but the words in print, digital words. Apparently, Google, Google would, right, has a massive database of all these things that have been printed, whether it's a book or an article or a newspaper or, or online blogs from 1500 to 2008. And so what these people did is they took 50 biblical terms associated with moral virtue, like love and patience and the fruits of the spirit, or modesty and kindness and thankfulness, different biblical virtues, and they ran it through this database to see how are we using these words. And what they found was that 74% of these words were used less in the last century. And not just by a little bit. Over 50% for most of them. Like the, the use of these words, these terms, biblical words, was, was cut in half. And these are pretty common terms. We're going to talk about love, gentleness, faithfulness, patience. But no doubt this can be tied to less time in God's word. Less time coming together with people and talking about it. Using this vocabulary to talk about Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said himself that man can't live on bread alone. But we live from every word that comes from God, right? The word as a whole and the words within it are like vessels of spiritual knowledge and spiritual nourishment. But so often we're spiritually malnourished by our own doing because we're not in it and, and wrestling with it, these words and their meaning. And I think if we're honest, some of us, right, we're simply apathetic about these words and their definitions because Religion doesn't mean much to us. Like, God doesn't define our day-to-day -day interactions, conversations, and dealings, so how we define the words doesn't matter much to us. If that's you tonight, maybe you would admit it, maybe you wouldn't. You're in the right place. Hopefully this series will spark something in you. But I think for many others of us, we become either confused or altogether silent about spiritual things because we're confused about what the words even mean. And I don't think it's for lack of knowledge. I think it's because... It's the opposite. We're so exposed to them. We live in like religious echo chambers and, and religious communities where we use these words over and over and over and over again without really thinking, what do they mean? Right? Like Roger's going to talk soon. He's going to start asking me things like, what does color mean? I won't be like, let me think about it. Right? Ask your mom. Right? <laughs> like if you ever tried to define the word the, like there's articles written on that. Like just defining these words that we use again and again and again and again. I think sometimes it's the same with us. Pause and think, man, what's the definition of salvation? What's love? What's God's love really mean? What's, what's grace really mean? What's mercy really mean? And maybe you share the question that I've asked myself. See, I was a drug baby. I was dragged to church by my parents <laughs> again and again. And, and I was fed these words, spoon-fed these words like grace and, and love and mercy. All these words, they ran through that database from a young age. And sometimes I think, man, the definitions I cling to that I learned so young, they need to mature with me. In my walk, like the definition of our words, as it says here, can make a world of a difference. 
You know the quote I read from a Christian poet that kind of sparked this whole conversation with myself, that kind of sparked this whole sermon series? It's by a poet named Christian Wyman. And he asked the question, does the decay of belief among educated people in the West precede the decay of language used to define and explore belief? Or do we sense the fire of belief fading in us only because the words are sodden with overuse and imprecision and will not burn? He's asking, man, does the decay in our belief come from our decay in these words, or is it, is it the opposite? What, what's the deal? And, and, and I want to take a jump to Judges 12. Might feel like a curveball when we read it, but you'll understand why. Because Judges is wild. You're about to find out. <laughs> Judges 12, verses 4 through 6. This, the, the heading here is Ephraim fights with Jephthah, and Jephthah's leading Gilead. And it says in verse 4 that the people of Ephraim responded, you men of Gilead are nothing more than fugitives from Ephraim and Manasseh. So Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and attacked the men of Ephraim and defeated them. Jephthah captured the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. And whenever a fugitive from Ephraim tried to go back across, the men of Gilead would challenge him. Are you a member of the tribe of Ephraim, they would ask. If the man said, no, I'm not, they would tell him to say Shibboleth. And if he was from Ephraim, he would say Sibboleth, because people from Ephraim could not pronounce the word correctly. Then they would take him and kill him at the shallow crossings of the Jordan. In all, 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Again, Judges is a wild book. It is, and it's not in a good way. It's a look at what happens when an entire nation of people says, I don't want anything to do with God's lordship. And as it says in Judges, everyone does as they saw fit. Close parallels to our culture, right? Where we got my truth, your truth, this truth, that truth. And we all do as we see fit rather than clinging to God's truth. And the result in Judges is not pretty. It's rated R. I remember when I was a new believer, probably like the first couple years, I talked to a father who was like, I don't let my children read the Old Testament yet. I was like, you Pharisee, right? Like, you, you're so hyper-religious. How could you not let your kid read the Bible? You're ridiculous. I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking, right? In my, I smiled and nodded my head, but I'm like, you crazy, man. And then, I, you know, you reread Judges, and you're like, yeah, I'm not reading this to Raj as a nighttime story. Like, this is, this is wild and crazy. And here in Judges 12, we get this episode where there's infighting between the tribes of Israel. And so the Gileadites were fighting the Ephraimites, and they seized the fords of the Jordan River. They thoroughly spanked the Ephraimites. And, and so many of the enemy would sneak back across these fords with regular travelers. So the Gileadites, they developed a password. It was a linguistic password. It was this word shibboleth. It's a common word. It has multiple meanings, many meanings. One of them is ear of grain. The other is flowing stream. And if you could pronounce it correctly, you were allowed to pass. If you couldn't, you were exposed as the enemy. And the Ephraimites, for whatever reason, couldn't pronounce Shibboleth. They said Sibboleth, just because of their language, their, the way they talked. One commentary said, and I laughed, that it was like saying God shave the queen instead of God save the queen, right? Small difference, but very notable, right? And the Gileadites used it to distinguish friend from foe. And what we see here is life or death hung on their use of a seemingly, like, throwaway word. Again, it meant ear of grain or, or flowing brook. It's not an important word in and of itself, but life and death was hanging on this word. And it makes us think, or it should make us think, of Proverbs 18.21, where it says, words can bring death or life. And in this case, it was literal right, for these people. You know, it's reported by historians 
that in World War II, Germans would uh, make these people in Russia pronounce the word for corn, kukuruza. I'm probably mispronouncing it because there's six O's in those three syllables. But Russian Jews would pronounce it differently, and they'd be able to tell by the way they said the word that they were Jewish in descent. You know, if you go back even further in history, go back to right after Jesus' arrest, right before Peter's betrayal, right? He's at the fire trying to just blend in. But people can tell by his accent that he's from Galilee. In Matthew, somebody's quoted as saying, you must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. Right? The way he talked was a giveaway. Again, we just got back from Laguasara last Saturday. You're not just talking about accents. You're talking about different languages. Jamal's laughing because this trip, like last trip, Amanda's fluent in Spanish. This trip, Spanish was our, or Jamal was our best Spanish speaker. And he's... He's okay, right? <laughs> but again, it's not, hey, he was the best. So you know what I'm saying about myself. But like you, you talk to these people. Um, the kids were coming from school and they were doing this thing with the learning, I guess, to roll their R's with vowel sounds. They were going, ra, re, re, ro, ru, right? And there's so many people in our group that couldn't roll their R's. But then there were people with food for the hungry that, that you know, speak English, but grew up in the DR speaking Spanish. They can't pronounce their Z's. It just turns into to S's. Like, Nate's not here tonight, but uh, ask him about a couple years ago when he went, and he met the kids, and they're asking what his name is, and he was like, Nate. Like, oh, Nietzsche. No, Nate. Nietzsche. He'd be like, say eight. And they'd be like, eight. Okay, so Nate. Nietzsche. Like, literally five minutes, like, just going back and forth. They could not say his name, and to this day, in that village, he's still Nietzsche, right? You know, the language we grow up with, it matters, and not just in simple pronunciation either. Like, in English... If we're talking about things in their relative direction, we're like, I put my fork to the left of my plate, right? Anthony, from, from your point of view, is sitting to the right of Amanda, right? So if I ask you right now, like, which direction is southeast? You got to be like, uh, think, you either think about it, like, where, where's the sun setting, do some measurements, or, like, you just guess, right? But you know what aboriginal languages, like, they don't talk left, right, above, beneath. They're like, I put my fork to the southeast of my plate. Like, as they're going about their day, this is to the east of that, the west of that, northeast. And you ask a grade school kid, right, which direction is southeast? And in a moment, they're like, bang, that way. Just because of the language they speak. We don't speak with directional uh, influences. You know, our language does, however, uh, consider tense present, stuff that happened in the future, in the past, happens in the present. But the Chinese language apparently doesn't use these different words. So often they'll talk about something that happened yesterday, today, or in the future with the same words. So psychologists say that they plan financially, gamble, right, behave economically different because of the very language that they use. You know, all this serves to show the languages we speak influence our worldview, our perception, our behavior, and the same power lies in individual words. Not just shibboleths that reveal us to the world, but words that we're given that reveal the world to us and the creator of the world. There was a piece I was studying where a professor said, hey, every word is a window. You know, words are windows, and the window through which we as believers should see the world is God's word and all the words within it. And when we see the world... According to the Bible, we see it uh, in an elevated way where it's supernatural, where it's high definition. But I think sometimes, again, the definition of our words can make a world of a difference. And often we don't see the world in 
the high definition we're supposed to see it in, the biblical way because our spiritual vocabulary we see it through can be shallow, lacking, or altogether absent. You know, earlier I asked, do my words and definitions, definitions, talking about different languages, I'm talking in different languages, wild accents and everything. But earlier I asked, do my words and definitions need to mature too? Maybe that makes you a little uneasy, like throw the flag, (laughs) penalty, right? Are we talking about like redefining words so that we're redefining truth? No. I'm not talking about changing truth. I'm not talking about choose your own adventure, choose your own definition, choose your own truth. But I am talking about chasing truth. And sometimes that takes not redefining, but returning to the words we're given and elevating definitions that have, whether they are shallow or altogether absent. It's about giving biblical words life again by reclaiming the definitions we no longer consider and the words we no longer use. Again, Proverbs 18.21 says words can bring life or death. And so often we make that about the totality of our conversations, the totality of the ideas we express. But what about each and every word? When we lose the depth of our spiritual vocabulary or when we lose words like, say, liturgy, lament, creed, confession, these different words, it's not like we're just losing pieces of our vocabulary. According to Proverbs 18.21, we're losing bits and pieces of, of life. That can elevate our worship, our picture of God, our picture of ourselves, and the picture of the world around us. They're gifts. You know, Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is alive and powerful. You know, the proof of that verse, you don't have to go far. The very first pages of your Bible, you see the word of God creating. Right? He creates the world with words. And in his last act of creation, he invites, excuse me, creates men and women in his image. And so for centuries, thousands of years, right, there's, there's been studies about what does this mean to be created in his image, right? Soul, spirit, mind. But I've heard it said, and you could say that it's the ability to speak. Because we're the one created being with this ability to, to have this intricate language, different languages in different places that can speak life, that can speak uh, all kinds of different things, that communicate. And then God's first command to man is to name creation using words. All these other beings, use your words to name creation. But then, of course, in history, we've got what rose up against how we thought about creation, which was Darwin's origin of species. Are you familiar? Where we get the idea of microevolution, macroevolution, not survival of the fittest. Is that it? Yeah, whatever. We'll call it that. But you know language almost toppled his theory from the start because language transcends natural selection, which was the term I was looking for, right? Language transcends the need for survival, right? It's beyond Darwin's explanation. It's complexity, especially the way it works in the brain. It just can't be explained. Like Darwin had a friend, his name was Alfred Wallace, who helped him develop his theory, helped him write his his work that became so famous. And yet for Alfred Wallace, in his mind, the ability to reason the ability to, to speak languages like we can, he's like, it can't be explained by any of this. In his mind, he admitted, like, this has to be a gift from something supernatural, divine, and, and above us. You know, hundreds of years later, science still bows at, at the ability to speak and, and language and languages. Like, we, we get the, the fact it's here and how we do it, but like so many things, it can't explain why we have this ability. Where did it come from? What we see in scripture, it's a divine gift. We're made in the image of God, the God who used words to create life. 
You know, the Jewish people understood that there was life in words. The fruit of, like, Greek philosophy, the fruit of the Enlightenment, and the fruit of, really, our culture is that we want to be able to define, to distinguish, to dial things in, to get a handle on, on everything. But Jews didn't treat words in the Hebrew language as dialed in and defined. Right? And mind you, these, this was the language that the Bible was written in. This was the people that put down most of the Bible. And within, to them, within the Hebrew language, it's like words were pliable. And as a result, words and meanings were multifaceted. They were complex. Again, even just the word shibboleth had like three or four meanings. Words in the Hebrew language often have many meanings, not one. And, and you will hear them explain it as like maybe some definitions haven't even been tapped into yet. And like for me as an English major in our culture, that weirds me out, right? I'm not used to that because when I grew up and when many of us grew up, if you wanted a definition for something, all you had to do was go to the shelf, pull this bad boy out, right? You might have to do some curls beforehand to just pick it up, but come on, you got the dictionary, right? Webster, the gift where if I need a definition for something, I open this up and I've got it. Now we, right, turn to our, our, our phones and Google, but when you look it up, you're going to an electric database of a dictionary, and a dictionary gives you a, a locked-in definition that we take as gospel, right? It is a locked-in definition of the word. It's dialed in. But consider this. The first dictionary wasn't put together till the year 1500. So all of humanity before that, centuries, thousands of years, men and women, we didn't have dictionaries. Right? Th those are a, a new invention. And even dictionaries don't so much tell us what words mean as much as they tell us how they're used. I mean, think about it. This is why the Urban Dictionary exists. It's online. You can look up, like, that exists. Greg, you're shaking your head. But so when your teenage son finally opens up his mouth and talks, you can understand what he's saying, right? Because kids these days talk about it's lit, it's a bop, right? No cap. And I'm just like, no comprendo. Right? I don't, what are you even talking about? Hebrews 6.1 to us says, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again to Generation Z that just says, don't be a noob. Stop being a noob. <laughs> but whatever translation, King James Version, Message, NIV, ESV, the Word of God is alive. The Word of God is powerful. And the words, the vocabulary it gives us that talk about God, that talk about the world, they have the power of life within them to speak life over other people, right, to speak life over yourself, but biblical words have been translated. And if we're not careful, they can become fixed and, and shallow. That's why one of my favorite uh, translations, a personal favorite, is the Amplified Version. It's not easy to read. <laughs> not easy to read at all. If It's anything but. It's choppy. It's uh, discombobulated. Like, thoughts don't flow. So why do I like it? Words are often followed by, like, synonyms, other words that kind of mean the same thing. Sometimes brackets will have thoughts that are pulled from the original translation. For example... Philippians 4.13, right, famous verse. Everybody's got to memorize because it's so simple. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amplified version. It's like a paragraph. I can do all things which he has called me to do through him who strengthens and empowers me to fulfill his purpose. I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses me with inner strength and confident peace. Again, not the easiest read, right? That is a mouthful. And it's not perfect either. You know, you study it and sometimes things in brackets, they don't really line up with the original translation. It's just like somebody's idea. But I love it because it keeps me thinking like the Jews did. Maybe this definition of this word that I just get one word is deeper than my first impression. 
Maybe the truth goes deeper than, again, my first impression. Maybe I need to wrestle with this. Maybe I need to dig deep into God's word and even use my imagination. Again, not to change truth, but to chase it down, wrestle with it, and apply it to my life. Another example, you look at Deuteronomy 6.5. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. It's a key verse in the Bible. Jesus Christ quotes this verse as one of the two greatest commands we're given. Right? This along with love your neighbor. So we should understand what this means. But you just look at the word love. In our culture, we get the definition of love from like rom-coms, romantic comedies. We get it from Bieber and our music. We get it from our own relationships. And so as a result, love for us becomes feelings of infatuation, butterflies, right, feelings. So this verse kind of reads as like a note that's passed in class where it's like, Love God, and you get to circle yes or no. And that, that's part of it, right? There's an aspect of love that, where it speaks to that, but it goes so much deeper. The Hebrew word for love has many meanings. Again, like so many words in the Hebrew language, one of which comes from a term describing enforced loyalty to a dominant party. Talking about obedience. Not just following your feelings, but exercising your will in obedience to another party that's greater than you. All of a sudden, that verse reads a little different, right? It comes into a higher definition when I really examine and wrestle with the definition of love. The way I see God comes into a higher definition. The way I see my relationship with God comes into a higher definition. In this series, we're going to do this on a bigger scale with different words and spend entire weeks on them. And some of them would slide into, like love would slide into what I would call the Inigo Montoya tier, class. Maybe you're not familiar with Princess Bride, but that character says, you keep using this word. I don't think it means what you think it means, right? We use the word love all the time in our culture. I love pizza. I love this. I love that. It's not necessarily wrong, but that word is so much deeper. Think about the word blessed. Hashtag blessed. We'll throw that up with like, I'm poolside, on vacation, a good steak dinner. And then you hold that up to the Beatitudes, right? Where it's like, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And you're like, maybe my definition <laughs> needs to be added to, right? I don't think that means what you think it means. Or it's not that it's wrong, just sometimes it's shallow. And our relationship with God and the way we see ourselves can be so much deeper if we'll just wrestle with what these words really mean. So we're going to look at some of those words. Another group of words are those that really have just been left for dead or atrophied. Like we don't use them anymore, so we don't even think about them. Again, liturgy, creed, lament. The word selah and what that means for prayer, we'll look at that maybe next week. Throwing it together, right? I don't know what we're doing. Just the order, right? But those 50 biblical terms right, we talked about in that survey we introed with, right, those are words that they're atrophying because we're barely even using them anymore. They're not a part of our vocabulary. You know, this sermon as a whole was kind of just an intro to the series. And I pray you got something from everything that preceded this. But let's, let's end with an application, like a take home. Because John 1, John 1, 1 reads, in the beginning was the word. Right? The word was with God. The word was God. Again, theologians have wrestled with what does that mean exactly? John is poetic. He's the most poetic of the gospel writers. And he, he says, in the beginning was the word. Speaking about Jesus, speaking about God. But for our purpose tonight, one word came before all others. One word is preeminent. One word's definition is more important than all others. God. Right? And that will inform how we see him, 
how we see others, how we worship. What do you think of when you think of God? How do you define God? And maybe you think, oh, that's an easy one. But is it? Define God. Read scripture and find a definition. Right? God created words. Our words can't even describe him fully. He's, be, he's above our thoughts, all our ways, right? He's, he's infinite. He's eternal. You can't define God. Scripture just gives us pictures and images, analogies. Shepherd, potter, father, teacher, silversmith, lion, bear. Don't think there's a tiger. <laughs> Malachi speaks to him as a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. Right? What do you think of when you think of God? How would you define God if your kid asked you, hey, how do you define God? What comes to mind when you think of him? It's a pretty famous quote by A.W. Tozer, but it's, it's worth returning to. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So I wanted to start with the word God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. What do you in your deep heart conceive God to be like? You know, a recent survey found that over 150 million Americans see God as an angry God, an authoritative God who rules with an iron fist, right? An angry king. That's who God is to really just the people that will admit it. A lot of people will be like, yeah, God is love, but they act like God is an angry God, right? It affects the way we relate to him. We walk on eggshells rather than intimacy with God. Father-son, father-daughter intimacy like we were talking about during worship. It affects the way we relate to him. It affects the way we relate to ourselves, right? We, we deal with stress, fear, anxiety rather than the peace that's beyond understanding he wants to give us. And then the way we deal with others, you see it every day on the Internet. <laughs> we angry at all those people over there for what's jacked up in their lives because, hey, that's how God deals with our sin, right? Right? The way we see God affects how you relate to him, how you relate to yourself, and how you relate to the billions of other people on the planet. Like when you think of God who's, as somebody, some people do in this survey, as somebody who created and now sits back, right, doesn't really intervene, just kind of watches, you yourself become passive. Not just with your own issues, but, but with issues of justice out in the culture. Like if God's passive, I'm passive. He doesn't care, I don't care. But when you see God as compassionate, whose first impulse is love, right, whose mercy triumphs over judgment, who sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins, who, like, like Steph was talking about, doesn't meet us in the middle, but went to the cross to die for us out of love, mercy, grace, and compassion, and did it for you specifically. When you see God like that, that doesn't just change you. It changes the way you view God. changes the way you view people, the way you walk in intimacy with people, the way you walk in intimacy with God. Like for those of us who are married, you talk about uh, intimacy with your spouse and getting to know them, that never ends. You're going to get to know them for the rest of your life. And they're human, finite, a person. How much more with God, right, who's infinite, transcendent, right? May we remember that God's transcendent, but he's also imminent, right? James says, you draw close to him, he'll draw near to you. Yeah, God's infinite, but he also wants to be intimate. Jeremiah 29 says, if you search for him with all your will, all your mind, all your heart, you'll find him because he wants to be found. He wants relationship with you, you. But our seeking of God, our chasing of his truth, again, more and more is becoming dormant. We see the Bible and either we don't have interest or we see it and we think, yeah, been there, done that. Right? We, we've memorized passages and verses like, yeah, I've, I've, I've read it. You know, I, I, I've been there. We forget that it's living 
It's active. As, as, as the New Living Translation says, it's alive and powerful. But do we handle it like that? Really? Like, do you look at your Bible and think, this is living and powerful. This is God's communication with me. Yes, God is infinite and eternal. We'll never fully understand it, but that's a gift to know him. So we can walk in relationship and communion with him. You know, if I can have the worship team come up, we're going to close. But again, who is God to you? How would you define the word God? Again, it's not easy. Scripture gives us pictures. Maybe for you it's a picture. Maybe for you it's a word. Maybe for you it's an image. Maybe for you it's what he's done for you. But think about it. Think about it. You know, I've been reading about David again this week, this month, and reading about his life. And the Bible talks about he was a man after God's own heart. And I love his story. I love his testimony. And I love in 2 Samuel 22, it's towards the end of his life. It's towards the end of his reign. And what David says This is how he describes God. Listen to all these descriptors. He is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. He is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. He is my refuge, my savior, the one who saves me from violence, my peace. And that's just the beginning. And that's no flat definition of God. The way he saw God had as much depth as his life was long. That's a high-definition view of God. Not to mention you can open your Bible towards the middle. You've got 150 chapters of Psalms where he describes the way he sees God and his relationship with God. One of my favorite verses when you're talking about God's Word is in Psalm 19. It's verse 7 and 10. It says, God's Word is perfect in every way, how it revives our souls. And listen to this. He says, nothing brings the soul such sweetness as seeking his living words. Are we seeking his living words? Are we speaking his living words? Who is God to you? Is he an idea, a figure, a power, or is he a person you relate with, a being you're in communion with? And maybe that's all you need from this sermon. It's all you need to go home with. This idea that relationship with God is all you need. That itch in your soul that you can't scratch that thirst in your spirit that you can't feel, that's because God created you for relationship with him. Yes, other things can scratch that itch for a time, but only God is eternal. Only God fills it eternally. We need that. We need that. And man, may, again, maybe that's all you need tonight. To know that, like Steph was telling us in worship, God runs after you. He's not waiting to meet you in the middle. He's not waiting for you to change your life up, clean your life up, to come into his presence. No, he chases you down meets you and changes you as you allow him. So man, if you need to step into relationship with God tonight, or maybe you just feel like the prodigal, you've been estranged, you've left, you need to come back. I would love to pray for you when you go back into worship. The Hilton's would love to pray for you. They're right here for prayer for anything at all. Maybe that's you. But you know what, again, I think all of us, we know him, we know of him, but how will we define him in relationship to us? Is it flat? Because he communicates to us and he gives us his word. The word of God. My heart for this summer, my heart for this series is we're going to look at individual words, but I pray we'd be stirred to dig into his word, right? The Bible, this 66-book love letter that he's given to us so we can walk in relationship with him. This is a vessel for spiritual nourishment. This is a vessel for spiritual knowledge and wisdom. We don't have to feel starved and hungry. This fills us. We... Don't live by bread alone, by every word that comes from God.
Again, David writes in Psalm, nothing brings the soul such sweetness as seeking his living words. Let's seek his words as a church. But tonight, can we close by seeking his face in worship? Can we stand? Stand in this place as we go back into worship. Jesus, as we're going to sing, we love you. God, but we want those words to communicate the depth of, of that word love. And God, we can only give as much as we've received. God, I pray that you would remind us of your love and your goodness tonight. That while we were orphaned, while we were sinners, while we were broken in sin, you didn't wait for us to meet you halfway. You went all the way to the cross. You descended from heaven, didn't see equality with God as something to be used to your own advantage, but took on flesh, humbled yourselves, and obeyed God even to the cross. And it says in Philippians that now you've been given a name above every name. And that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess to the glory of God the Father. And I pray that in this place we wouldn't wait to have that confession or to kneel our hearts before you. We do it tonight in worship. We praise you in this place. We thank you, Jesus, for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And God, we praise you in this place. And again, if you need prayer for anything, we would love to pray for you. But let's worship.